Hey, Modern World listeners, this is Captain Jake Moraldi. As we here at West Point get back into the school year and welcome the cadets back from their summer training, the Modern War Institute website, mwi.usma.edu, and the War Council blog will have lots of new contributors from staff and faculty here at West Point to MWI scholars and non-resident fellows to West Point cadets. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. Benedetta Birdie. Dr. Birdie is a foreign policy and security researcher, analyst, consultant, author, and lecturer. Her work focuses on human security and international conflicts. We'll talk to her about the rise of violent non-state actors, the conditions that cause them to arise, and what influence they'll have on military operations in the future. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of their respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. This is the Modern War Institute Podcast. Well, Dr. Birdie, welcome to the podcast today. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to jump right in with, with a big sort of thematic question. Most of the work that you do talks about non-state actors. And what I want to ask right up front is how do non-state actors, how do they come about? Right. Well, yeah, that is, that is a pretty weighty question to start with but let me let me let me see if what i can do uh in terms of summarizing you know years of research but basically yes my 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 research interest starts from this really broad concept of non-state actors and more specifically i focus in on a specific subset non-state armed groups which so basically i look very broadly at all those all those actors that are not part of the state they're not controlled by the state they are independent, they have political or social or economics or all of these goals combined, and they use violence to attain this, uh, these particular sets of goals, and therefore they are more often than not a challenger to the state. So I start by looking at this category, and basically the assumption is for many years we thought non-state actors were at the margins of politics, they were at most a law enforcement problem or a nuisance or little more than glorified bandits in terms of rebels. Uh, but I would say that in the past few decades, especially after the end of the Second World War and, and even more so after the end of the Cold War, they are gradually transitioned from the margin to the center, to the center of the political uh, arena. Why is that? It's many reasons. One has to do with uh, globalization and the fact that it's easier for them to communicate, to move around, to get weapons. It also has to do with the fact that globalization has reallocated the rules of sovereignty at the national and global level. So in a way, the more states are weak or fragile or unable to control their territories, the more other challengers are able to step in and fill that vacuum. So I my most of my research looks at how do these non-state violent actors fill this vacuum how do they relate to the state and in doing so how they're changing the way we think about statehood sovereignty and basically how do we look at their trajectory and rethink the global rules of the game we actually touched on a, a fair amount of what my next question was gonna gonna try and hit on because you've argued in your ted talk for example that the primary way that non-state actors come about is that they fill some sort of governance gap, correct? Right. 
not all of them, of course, but that's, that's a specific subset of non-state actors that are really interesting to observe, where you see violence as just one of the tools in their toolbox to asserting their goals. So the question that I was going to ask was, was what about this time period? What about the age that we're currently living in allows non-state actors to be as influential as they are? And you mentioned some of the, some of the potential factors in your previous answer yeah. about globalization and, and all those sorts of things. Can you elaborate on, on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think if we look broadly, at, at the world today, we see that, and this is, has been the trend for, for, for a while now, we see the most conflict happen not between states, but within states. And we also see that the character of these conflicts being then civil wars, insurgency, or uh, low, uh, low intensity warfare, whatever the type of uh, conflict, you tend to have one or more non-state armed groups. Some of them are little more than thugs. Others are more sophisticated and they're engaged in both uh, economic, social, political, and uh, military activities. And this specific subset of groups, and of course, today in the news, there is so much about this is so-called Islamic State, but they're by no means the only uh, violent organization that, that does it. Sure. You, you see that their strategy implies military force, but it also implies governance. So the, the, the key difference here is that territorial control implies territory of control, uh, of uh, controlling both the population and the territory. And it's not just done um, for looting or it's not just done for self-financing, although that's that's part of it, but it's also done to establish legitimacy. And it's also done for the group to really see itself as um, something more than just a non-state actor. And the news are um, constantly focusing on the Islamic State because, in a way, it is a especially worrisome manifestation of this trend. Controlling territory, controlling population. And if we want to understand why or how they're able to do that, of course every group is different, but by and large we go back to the fact that to the fact that they're operating in areas that are fragile, where governments are ineffective, inefficient, and more often than often than not, they are able to rise from a situation of internal conflict and instability which allows, again, to create this sort of vacuum where challengers to the state are able to go to the local population and say, well, the state is not providing security, well, the state is not providing basic services, we all step in and do that. And by doing that, we get power, we get resources, and we get legitimacy. Is the, is the goal of building that legitimacy with something, with one of the, the non-state actors like the Islamic State that are... <laughs> That are trying to build legitimacy is that is building that legitimacy meant to replace the state or create a new state entirely, or, or are they building legitimacy for a different reason? So it really depends on the group. On on the group, some some local rebel groups may want to establish legitimacy because at the end of the day they want to have a dialogue or a negotiation with the state and they want to go to that negotiating table with uh, power. And with a representation. In other cases, the the, the rebel group, the, the military actor, the violent organization manages to live side by side 
with the state. Um, I spent quite a bit of time studying and being in Lebanon looking at Hezbollah, and more often than not, there you don't have a competition between the non-state our group and the state. They live side by side, Hezbollah being part of the government, but also having its governance outside of the government. And both of, in most cases, there is a this parallel, if you want, dysfunctional, but still relationship. But if we focus on a very different type of organization like this Islamic State, then yes, their their goal is very much uh, to replace the state. Well, to be they they self-proclaim themselves to be in a state, and by um, by the same act, they also proclaim all the other state entities uh, in the region to be illegitimate. So their 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 project is especially diff- especially. Um, complicated because it's territorial, it's governance-based, it's state-building, but it's also post-nationalist in the sense that they reject the pre-existing regional order and they reject the other states in the region. Most rebel groups that are on earth, that are operating right now, are don't are, don't, are not as ambitious in their um, agenda as the Islamic State, but certainly this is a, a an important trend. Are the things that non-state actors and, and violent non-state groups are doing, is it different than what we've previously understood as what insurgencies do, or is it just being done more frequently and at a, a grander scale? Right. So I think I would. that's a really good question, and there's a very big debate uh, within the both policy and scholarly literature about what exactly are witnessing here. If I start with the with the I think easier part of the discussion, I can say, well for once when we look at a group like again, I'm using ISIS here as an example, but we can look at more. The first point that I think we can virtually all agree with is this is not um, your grandfather's terrorist organization. It does way more than that because of the social, because of the political, because of the economic, but also because of the way it fights, which is broader than what we normally understand uh, terrorism to be. Mm-hmm. So then the discussion goes into, is this, this just a bona fide insurgency? And what we're seeing here, it's not so much a new trend, but rather many of the terrorists organizations that are active today are really going back or to a broader insurgency strategy where terrorism is one of their tools. And I think there is a good case to be made that yes, what we're seeing here has a lot of uh, characteristics of classic insurgency. So you have the political and the military strategy combined. You have this interest in reaching the hearts and minds of the population. And you have a military um, doctrine that goes both, that employs terrorism as one of the tools in the toolbox alongside classic guerrilla warfare tactics. So in a way, this is insurgency. But I would also say that this description is, um, is correct, but it's not sufficient to really depict the complexity of an organization like the Islamic State. For example, yes, it does all these things that we think insurgency do, but it also does a little bit more. For example, um, it's public, open, holding and controlling the territory and its uh, attempts, many times unsuccessful, but nevertheless, it's focused on keeping that territory and creating uh, a defense system. 
not your traditional insurgency, holding ground. Uh, also, the way it has fought, especially at the beginning, its early campaigns weren't just about guerrilla hit guerrilla uh, warfare, hit and run, ambushes, IEDs, but mm -hmm. there were on many instances also uh, offensive operations against military, uh, militarily, you can say, quite lacking adversaries, but nevertheless. So there are some hybrid characteristics here in the way they fight, in the way they think about themselves, and it, their territorial project is, again, very... Um, sui generis, very specific, because it's not about replacing a government and toppling a government, but it's about rejecting the entire uh, regional political order. So it's not exactly an insurgency. And many of the groups that of the most lethal and organized non-state armed groups today present some of these hybrid characteristics. So there is definitely insurgency there, but we probably need a bigger term to really capture the entirety of what they do. Is there an effort to, to put a name to what something like the Islamic State does? Because conceivably, this will become sort of the, the norm going forward uh, for some of the more advanced and, and more resource-capable armed groups. I think, I think there is, uh, I think there's definitely that point, meaning the more, as you say, the most, those that have better resources, that have the capabilities are definitely uh, paying close attention. And even though today most of these so-called IS provinces are more provinces, more of a media statement than actual governance structure, we do see that in certain places, Libya, of course, it's in the news these days with good reason, there is this attempt to emulate the model. So, yeah, it's, it, it is a trend. It is something I think that we need to place close attention to. Is there a way, for, is there one term that encompasses everything? I'm not sure, but I can say in terms of how they fight, you have, uh, it's an insurgency, but you also have some hybrid warfare characteristics. In a way, very different, of course, in terms of ideology and organizational structure, but in a way, uh, not totally different from the way Hezbollah fought Israel in the July 2006 war, this combination of insurgent, insurgent tactics with semi-conventional. But that's just part of what they do. So that only captures the way they fight. Everything else, this is rebel governance, of course. But what we're really trying to understand is, uh, is how does it fit within the more established forms of rebel governance we've seen from from Somalia to, um, to Uganda to, to, of course, um, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And in, in a way it does, but again, w the difference with ISIS is this rejection of the borders, rejection of the concept of state of pre-existing states. So in a way it's more um, absolutist, is even less uh, amenable to compromises that are examples of rebel governance we have around. So I don't know if there is one term that captures everything, but other than this hybrid idea between a state and an unsaid actor, between an insurgency and a quasi-army. It's an in-between actor. And of course, as time goes by, we'll see where it progresses to. It may very well revert to a more um, terrorist-focused strategy and modus operandi as the international coalition goes against it. But still, the trend is very interesting 
for the pur- for the purpose of studying the evolution of non-state armed groups. I want to change gears real quickly uh, and bear with me for a second while I kind of try and set the scene here. So sure. you you talked about how how gaps in government end up in a lot of cases becoming sort of the root cause of of these non-state actors or, or non-state violent groups beginning, I guess is the best way to, to describe it. I'm trying to envision in my head how, how that progression happens. So if my neighborhood in a city in Pakistan, say, is not, you know, doesn't have electricity or doesn't have water, and we create a neighborhood system to, to, fulfill those governmental needs or security need, which is probably the one that, that yields more of the more violent groups. How does that evolve into something that has larger goals than just the security of their own community? Sure. I mean, that's, uh, I think, that, well, first of all, it's a really interesting question and is one of the, the, the research question I try to really zoom in. Uh, but I think the first point that you made, which is really, uh, I think, interesting is as well, what happens is in, in areas of the world, neighborhoods, villages, regions, where the state is not providing uh, for the population and the basic services aren't there. And in many cases, it's exactly, it's exactly what you say, which is community-based, grassroots-based, uh, bottom-up type of governance. And I, w- I just want to make a parenthesis that that's, not necessarily a bad thing. In many cases, that can be extremely efficient. It can be uh, res- more responsive, and it can be a very good solution. Mm-hmm. What we're talking here, unfortunately, is a case in which those that are providing the security are doing it from a point of view of um, a broader, let's say, uh, set of goals, and often they do it through um, because they have the guns. And so we, having guns changes the equation from, you say, the community-based, grassroots-based governance. Sure. And I think, you're, I think you're spot on when you say, how does it start? Does it start with security? I would say oftentimes it does. Even if I think about um, this Islamic, uh, this is so-called Islamic State that in its previous incarnation was um, the Islamic State of Iraq. One of the ways they started to put themselves on the map had to do with provisional security arrangements. And that's the case in many of these armed groups, even the Taliban, when this, when in the midst of the um, civil war that followed the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, when this Taliban movement emerged, it was substantially a security provider. And that's how many of these rebel governments start. They start with the basic, which is we have the guns, we can provide basic security. And that's, that creates a first relationship with the population and it also helps to establish control and from there it either evolves into something more complicated again like the case of the islamic state or in other cases it just remains basically a protection uh extortion racket which is what at the at the very basic level we're talking about here um the progression depends on so many issues that i and factors that it's hard to really make a summary, but in part it depends on the opportunities. Is the state there doing what it's supposed to be doing or not? If not, well, there is an opportunity. Is there an infrastructure already in place that this that a rebel group can start um, relying on or co-opting, for example? Uh, what type of relationship is there with the population? Is there very open 
civilian resistance or not. If there isn't, then maybe there is more of a, of a possibility to expand from just security into governance because there is a basic level of support. So it depends on many, many um, factors, I would say. But if we go back to the macro, from the micro level to the macro, one of the facilitating factors is the absence or the weakness of the fragility of the state. And in many cases, compounded with the state's lack of interest in uh, providing for, for the population. Again, Iraq comes to mind in the sense that when this Islamic state of Iraq starts growing, part of the reason why it does so is because at that point, the central government in Baghdad is largely perceived, especially in the, in the areas of the country where, where, where ISI is growing, as ineffective, corrupt, inefficient, and basically uninterested in, it, in its job. So we go back to this link between the, the, the state and the non-state arm group. So the, the next question I had is, is about the response to violent non-state actors. And I'm curious, this may be a bit of an overgeneralization, but I'm curious why states seem to have as much trouble as we do in dealing with these violent non-state actors. Right. I mean, I think, it, again, it's it, it very, very important questions and one that unfortunately doesn't have one answer. There's many, but I think if we start with the basic, um, I think a basic fact here is that victory may look very different seen from the point of view of the state versus the non-state actor. For an insurgency or a guerrilla, most of the time survival can be branded as a victory. That's definitely not the case for the state adversary. Also, um, a non-state armed group does not need to win on the battlefield in order to frustrate its opponent's goals. The Taliban do not need to defeat the international forces in Afghanistan in order to frustrate the transition and the state building. All they need to do is the, to continue uh, attrition, uh, their, their war of attrition and to um, to erode the resolve to there, to erode uh, the process of transition. So, in other words. This is one of the problems of asymmetric warfare, right? Where like the success looks very different and what you need and you don't need, if you're the non-state actor, you don't need to win. All you need to do is not lose and all you need to do is bleed your enemy slowly and that's, that's going to do it for the time being. So that's part of the problem. But then if we go into, into, into the more broader discussion, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but one point that to me is very important is if part of the reason why I, in many cases these armed groups are able to thrive has to do with the government's inefficiency, with the government's corruption, with the fragility, with the lack of governance, then certainly the response, these are all political issues and they cannot just be addressed militarily. It takes a governance project to, to fight a governance project. It takes a, a project of political inclusion to fight a, uh, a project that thrives on political exclusion. So I would say, again, it's difficult to, to uh, sum up in few words such a complex problem, but I would say the political component, the governance component, has been lacking. And until it's not lacking, we're going to continue to play cat and mouse and and in, in, when dealing with this type of organizations. So the last question I have for you is because 
these this discussion is meant mostly for for cadets and military and security professionals. Yep. I'm curious what your mm-hmm. yep what your thought about how we as security professionals should understand our role in dealing with non-state actors and violent non-state actors, especially because what you just said, it's not entirely or even primarily a military problem with a military solution. Uh, so I'd be curious what your what your thoughts were exactly. on Exactly. Exactly. I think that is one of the really important conversations that need to happen more, because if I look at the past 10 years, from counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and Iraq to, by the way, the war on drugs, to a number of other global de- complex challenges that involve non-state armed groups, I see there is a real need to put at the center of the table the fact that what we're dealing here is with complex military, but also political, social, and economic problems, and that unfortunately there's been a tendency sort of to offload and to shift entire responsibility to deal with them to the military or through a military strategy. And that, of course, has not led to optimal results. And of course, it's impossible to generalize and come up with a hard rule that applies to all these different cases. But in very broad terms, I would say, of course, there is a role for uh, military power, of course, there is a role for the, the security professionals, but it's also very important to discuss how, uh, for example, when it comes again to this to the Islamic State, it will take more than military power to change substantially the situation on the ground. It will take addressing the lack of governance that policy of corruption, that policy of exclusion, it will take a governance project to change the dynamic. Otherwise, the best we can hope for is for for ISIS to be um, weakened, but for another group to rise from its ashes or for a situation of prolonged instability to emerge, neither of which are optimal outcomes. So again, I think what we need to put back on the table is that this is a military problem, but it's also so much more than that. And and it's important to go back to the policymakers and say we need to talk strategy in the broader sense of the term, in terms of grand strategy. And that discussion, I think, is uh, has been missing and it should and should it be. Great. Well, that's all I have for you. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I was very uh, it was it was great for me to have a chance to to talk about this very important and difficult question. So thank you. <laughs> If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership. <laughs>